myself is the best I'm blessed to know that lust is a test I used to be the victim, now I'm just envisioning I'm knowing this is I'm Susie Landolfi, and welcome to Be Crazy Well. Now, why would a therapist say that? Because we all have mental health struggles, even therapists. The good news is we have so much more information about how we can be crazy well. On my podcast, we don't focus on what's wrong with us. We want to know what happened to us. We're going to explore how trauma affected us, both negatively and positively. That's right. I said positively. It's called post-traumatic growth, and it's a real thing. Be Crazy Well will share mental health wellness practices, the newest mental health research, and most importantly, how we all get to create the person we deserve to be and the life we deserve to live. So join the mental health evolution and be crazy well. You know, even at my old age, I think that, oh, how much more trauma can happen? A shitload. And trauma can even happen when you don't make it happen. The universe, other people, dogs, cars, wars. I mean, it's there's no guarantee that trauma isn't going to keep showing up in our lives. One of the, I think, the worst things that happens to those of us that have trauma is we start to believe that there's something wrong with us. Like that the effects of trauma start to make us question about ourselves, our value. More importantly, we question if we are normal. This book is called The Myth of Normal by Dr. Gaber Mate. I've been a huge fan of his because he's not one of those hypocritical doctors who talked about his own struggle with shopping addiction. He's talked about the trauma that he experienced as a child because he is from a family that suffered greatly in the Holocaust. And what else I like about him a lot is he keeps learning. He doesn't come up with something and then sell it. And then years down the road, keep selling the same thing over and over again when we know differently. He's the one changing the service, changing the definitions, changing the healing. He's a true disruptor. So when this book came out, I thought, oh, this is great because I have a lot of people asking me, is that normal? Is it normal what I'm doing? And I usually have one stock answer. It is normal considering I know what happened to you, it's really normal. I didn't say it was effective. I just understand that trauma creates things about ourselves that actually are not true. And that would be the effects of the trauma that hurt us, that constantly judge us, that make us judge ourselves, um, that tell us we keep having to change and do better and be different. There's also trauma, I should say trauma creates something that we got to talk more about. And that's the strength and the courage that also happens that comes from trauma. So Dr. Mate talks about the big T trauma and the little T trauma. And um, I'll read that to you because I think it's important. 
So capital T trauma occurs when things happen to vulnerable people that should not have happened. I got a whole list of that. Small T trauma, this is the most important. These are memorable but hurtful and far more prevalent misfortunes of childhood. Less memorable but hurtful and far more prevalent misfortunes of childhood and leave on the psyches of children. These hurts. You know, I have a hard time sometimes when people start telling me their childhood and they say, I had a great childhood. Scares the shit out of me. I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to be able to talk to this person and discover some of the things that happened to them that are those small T traumas, the little drops of water on your forehead that keep saying, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. Yeah, but that's good, honey, but why didn't you? That's good, honey, but why didn't you? And it's like this insidious, constant little drip that really embeds itself in every part of us. So what I love about what he does is is that he talks about all of it. We want to just know about the big shit that happened, the big traumatic things that happened, child sexual abuse, this and that. Of course we should. We're not clear, though, that these small, consistent injuries ate away at our self-worth, our value, and our inability to really believe that we're okay, that we're valuable. It eats away at every part of us, one tiny bite at a time. It also makes us very close to believing that our families and our friends and our communities didn't do anything that bad. So then we're colluding and we're very at risk of passing those traumas down because they seem benign. He calls it uh, multi-generational. In fact, that's been around for a while. And it gets passed down from parent to child, stretching the past into the future. I love that line. We pass on to our offspring what we haven't resolved in ourselves. You know, people say to me, you know, I work with a lot of combat veterans, retired professional athletes, and a whole bunch of wonderful people. I'm okay. I don't need to talk about that. No, I've, I'm good now. It's okay. And I want to say, yeah, well, you may be good. Have you checked on your children lately? Have you checked on them to see what the past couple of years has done to them while you were struggling? It's almost like we believe that once as a parent, I am better, that all those effects of when I wasn't just went away. I've actually, I've heard parents say that, oh, I'm so better now, aren't I, honey? And then when these effects start to show up, the parent is aghast. My God, well, I don't do that anymore. You shouldn't like hold that against me. I don't do that anymore. I, I'm like, I, I don't know how to explain this, except that it is the basic foundation of our well-being, childhood, the basic foundation of our well-being or lack of well-being. And then he did something that was really interesting in this book. He designed a self-inquiry exercise. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read off these questions. And because this podcast kind of lives on the internet and every place, you can go back 
and you can listen to it over again. So if you miss any of these questions, um, you can go back and listen to them and do it. I am inviting all of you to do this inquiry, to do this self-inquiry and exercise. So I'm going to read the questions one at a time fairly slowly. If you want to write them down, go get your pencil now or the notes in your phone. Most everybody's got a phone. Or if you're driving, just remember you can come back and listen to this and write them down. But I want you to listen to these questions and think about the answer. Dig deep and see what happens. It's best done in a written form in a quiet room where you can be with yourself and your experience, free from distractions. You want to write out your answers because doing so will engage the mind more actively and profoundly than just observing your mental ideas or insights. Also, because maybe you might want to record your progress. Super important. All right. Question one. In my life's important areas, what am I not saying no to? Listen again. Question one. In my life's important areas, let's say the top three, what am I not saying no to? What are you not saying no to? What are you allowing? Question two. How does my inability to say no impact my life? So first you got the areas that you're not saying no to. And then you have to go a little deeper and you have to ask yourself, because I'm not saying no, because I'm unable to say no, how does that impact my life? Are you exhausted? Are you overwhelmed? Are you tired? Are you, are you just not present? Question three. What bodily signals have I been overlooking? Bodily signals. You know, when I was a little girl, uh, my mom started drinking when I was five years old. Um, she'd just gone through the divorce with my dad and he was very abusive and she was still reeling from that. And now she was on her own and he wasn't very generous with money. And so I can only imagine how anxious she was. So at five, my mom started drinking. At five, now I never saw her drunk, by the way. I just want to say that once I woke up in the middle of the night, she only drank at night and I did see she was a little different, but I had no idea it was about drinking. I knew my dad drank. So I, I just felt something. I knew something was off. And I started wetting the bed at five years old. Started. Never wet it before. I wet that bed probably almost every night for five years while she drank. And my mother never shamed me for that. She never even pointed it out. She just changed the bed. My mother went to her first AA meeting. When she, when I was 10, she was so afraid she was going to lose us. And she stopped drinking that night and never drank again. I stopped wetting the bed that week. The week that she went to her first AA meetings, I stopped wetting the bed and never wet it again. The body has signals. Uh, any autoimmune issues you have, 
any stomach issues. It's trying to tell you something. It's not just a physical signal. It's a physical signal that comes from the trauma that you have not talked about, that you have not said no to. Question four, what is the hidden story behind my inability to say no? That's a really interesting thing, the hidden story. Like, what's the family myths about, oh, I just love helping people. And, oh, your mother's so nice. She helps everybody. Except maybe you, because she's too tired. Or your dad. Oh, your dad works so hard. And then he helps my dad, you know, over the weekend. And, yeah, maybe didn't make it to the softball game. So what's the story? Who told you that you couldn't say no? That for some reason, if you said no, something was going to happen that wasn't okay. Question five, where did I learn these stories? So first you have the story. Now let's put a name. Let's put school. Let's put family. Let's put siblings. Let's put friends. Let's put country. Let's take a look at all the ways that we are impacted and influenced. And where, where did I learn these? That's a place now. Where? Where did I, I learn these stories? Number six, where have I ignored or denied the yes that I wanted to be said? I wanted to say yes. I wanted to say yes. And I couldn't. Where have I ignored or denied all of those opportunities to say no or yes? What is that about? What have I learned? So those are the six questions that I would love you to answer. It's an opportunity not to pressure your family about how horrible they were in your childhood. It's to understand what you were taught and how these stories, these teachings continue to affect you physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, and financially. I think of all the times that I couldn't say no. I think of all the times I put myself at risk because I couldn't say no. I think of the times that I said yes, and they put me at risk. Why is that? Because my family wasn't safe. They had too much trauma. And the effects of trauma almost reversed everything. So what I should have said no to, I said yes. And what I should have said yes to, I said no. Like it literally wired my brain backwards. I remember when I first got into healing, she had a really wonderful therapist that said, we're going to try something next week. When you want to say yes, I want you to say no. And when you say no, I want you to say yes. I was flabbergasted. I was like, what? How? That sounds terrible. (laughs) Sounds terrible. And she said, well, so far it hasn't worked. So why don't we try something else? Because if your brain has been wired backwards because of trauma, we should know that, right? That's something that we should know. 
I'm going to read you something else uh, from this amazing book. Uh, I hope you'll go out and read more from Gaber Mate. This is one of my favorite. Ask not why the addiction, but why the pain. For all of those that struggled with family members with addiction, maybe that's the question that we haven't asked. Ask not why the addiction, but why the pain. I want to read something else. This is super important, so I'm going to read it slowly. Despite the genetic hoopla in the popular media and all the lavishly funded DNA hunting in the scientific world, no one has ever identified any gene that causes mental illness, nor any group of genes that code for specific mental health conditions or are required for the presence of mental disorder. I'm going to tell you that's going to just upset a lot of people. It is so much easier for us to blame genetics, blame the ancestors, blame the internal workings. I, I liken it oftentimes to a car. I remember when I was learning to drive and we had a clutch and I was told not to ride the clutch. So for all you youngsters, you don't know much about this, that Riding the clutch means that you put it in, you get your foot on the clutch because you're going to want to shift pretty soon. And the clutch um, disengages all the, um, you know, for a sec, the gears. So I was so anxious that I would put my foot just lightly on the clutch while I was driving. And that's called riding the clutch. It literally was engaged just a little bit. There was friction going on. It would be like me going, it's just the make of the car. They make bad clutches. They wear out. They weren't designed right. As opposed to what I was doing to that clutch because how I was taught to drive or because my anxiety kept pressuring me. Like, watch out. You're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to downshift soon. So get your foot ready. I had to do everything fast. I had to get everything right. So I think it's really important that we understand that this is absolutely one of the most important self-inquiries that we get to do. I say get to do. It's kind of like, oh, I get to be with horses. Do you ever notice when people say I get to do something, they're so happy, as opposed to I have to, or they want me to? It's interesting when all of a sudden you take control of your get-tos. Oh, I get to go to the I get to talk about my childhood. I get to take this inquiry. I get to answer those questions. I get to have wellness practices that help lessen the uh, intensity of my anxiety and depression. I get to do that every hour. I get to do that. It's this sort of interesting way that we deny what we deserve. I get to be calm. I deserve it. I get to be happier than I was as a child. I deserve that. I get to do all of this work because it helps me. I get to do that. All right. The myth of normal. I hope you'll look it up. 
I hope you'll listen to it or read it. You know, I do this, uh, I read these books a lot and I have to have a, oh, here it is. Yes. I have to have my highlighter. And then I have to have these. Got to have my sticky notes. So it's very funny when I lend a book to someone, I leave the sticky notes in. And I ask them to just add theirs. But sometimes I get a book back and it's filled with sticky notes. One's an, an, an underlining that I didn't see. Uh, it's also allowed, if you own the book, to write in the columns and in the margins. Did you know that's okay? I know as a kid we were told don't write the book. If it's your book, you can write in the book. So whenever a book or the self-inquiry or anything sparks some ideas about what happened to you, the big T traumas, the little T traumas, and the post-traumatic growth trauma, absolutely write it down because you get to. You get to be crazy well. How cool is that? You get to be crazy well. I, you notice I didn't, I didn't say you get to be, uh, be normal well. I think you probably figured that out. I'm not a big fan of normal. And thank you, Gabba Mate, for letting us know that most of what we think is abnormal is just unbelievable reactions to what happened to us. All right, everybody, have a great week. We'll talk again soon. Be crazy well. Be your best self. That's the name of the theme song by Calvin Love. Can't thank him enough for giving me the opportunity to use that song. All right, everybody, talk to you soon. Bye.